Our text this morning is the really magnificent panoramic cosmic vision from Romans chapter 8, the New Testament lesson. This text is, perhaps surprisingly, a traditional reading for the day of Pentecost. It's a Pentecostal text. It's the text about what the gift of the Spirit does to the church. So by way of uh, orientation, I want to frame this text with verses 16 and 17, the opening verses of the text in Romans 8. So Romans 8, beginning of verse 16, there we're told the Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. To receive the Spirit is to be adopted as a child of God. And it, notice how Paul's mind works here. It's always good, especially in Paul, but anywhere in the Bible, to ask, why does he go there in that way? What's the lie? Paul says this, if children. Notice how his mind works. He's an eschatological man. If children, then heirs. If children, then heirs. Paul goes from our adoption. Immediately to the end, to the eschaton, to the coming glory. If children, then heirs. Inheritance. The being of heirs is a future reality. Our inheritance, Peter says, is reserved for us in heaven. And Paul thinks this way. In other words, he goes from the moment of your creation to the end. He thinks this way because he's thinking about the Spirit. And the Spirit is himself the first fruits, he'll go on to tell us, of the age to come. The down payment, the pledge, the seal of your inheritance. So the whole of Christian existence, right, the whole Christian life, is life in the Spirit. And that means the whole Christian life is life oriented toward the end. Christianity works from the end back down, from, or you could say from heaven to earth, or from the future into the present. It doesn't work from the present into the future in any linear way. It works from the future back. And it must do that because the gift of the Spirit is the gift of the end, the gift of the future. Thus, Paul says, if children, then heirs, destined for the full inheritance, of which the Spirit he says, is the foretaste. We sang about it in our hymns this morning. How magnificent, how excellent, how unsurpassed is the gift, the donation of the Spirit of God. But you might think, how, how can it be that the Spirit what does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance, the foretaste of our future glory? Why is this? Well, it's really simple, actually. Because the Spirit is God, without remainder. The God of the future, the God who is to come, coming to dwell with us. And God is our inheritance. So if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, he says, notice in the text, heirs of God 
fellow heirs of Christ. This is something that only happens in and with Christ. It happens in Christ. It happens with Christ. It happens in the same way or by the same pattern of Christ. Right? Christ comes into his glorious inheritance at the resurrection of his body. You will come into your glorious inheritance at the resurrection of your body. It's a structural pattern. So there's a question then. Remember, I'm... Paul is framing what he wants to say here. Here's a a question. What about in the meantime? What about in the time between becoming an adopted child of God, right, being children who are heirs, and actually inheriting? What about that time? Well, Paul addresses that time here, too. He says, we will inherit, provided we suffer with him. Right? Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Suffering now, glory then. This is the frame of Christian existence. And with that, I'm going to make three points. They're there in the outline in your bulletin. The creation, the Christian, and the Holy Spirit. So first, the creation. This is, again, Romans 8, verse 18. The apostle says this, I consider the sufferings of this present time to not be worth being compared or to be unworthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Again, you see the pattern in his mind. Suffering of all sorts now, glory later. This is basic Pauline theology. This age, suffering. The age to come, glory. There are only two times for Paul, this present time and that time which is to be revealed. He tells us, Paul, for example, in Colossians, that the sons of God are now hidden. But they will be revealed, unveiled to the world, when Christ appears in glory. So there's this coming glory. We all agree to that, right? But here's the thing. In Paul's heart, in his vision, he says, so great is the glory in view. Now, this can almost seem shocking or cavalier. So great is the glory in view that all the suffering of this age, I mean, it's holocausts, it's exiles, it's wars, it's cancers, Death itself, the sum total of all natural and human misery, of all disorder, of all trauma, of the horrors and terrors of life. They are not even worth to be compared with the coming revelation of glory. The glory is so great that it would be illicit to compare the sum total of human misery to it. Now that's a vision of the coming glory. Whatever you want to say about the problem of evil and human anguish and human suffering and human misery, in light of the coming glory, it would not even be worthy to try and weigh them out, to try and do some sort of calculus. It's an astonishing, it's an audacious vision. The glory to come will dwarf the significance. It will shrink to the vanishing point all the sufferings of the present time. If we don't believe this, We should not be Christians. 
because there's a heck of a lot of awful suffering in the present time. Is that your vision of the coming glory? A vision which engulfs and swallows up the sum total of historical agony in such a way that if anyone came forward and said, look, why don't we compare this glory to this agony and see how much better the glory is, Paul would say, it's not even worthy of a comparison. It's illicit to compare. Remember how we said God himself cannot be compared to any other being? He's in no class. He's incomparable. The glory of that God, when fully revealed, is incomparable. It cannot be compared to human misery. This is Paul's answer to the problem of human evil. He doesn't have any other calculus but this one. And this is why he can say in 2 Corinthians 4, that momentary light affliction. Look at it. He can, he can, he can document his apostolic sufferings. And then just say, well, this is just momentary. Light affliction. Not only is it unworthy of being compared, he says, it actually produces an eternal weight of glory. It's not just that their suffering characterizes this age and glory characterizes the next. It's that this suffering produces that glory, that incomparable glory. For the creation waits, he says, this is verse 19 now, with eager longing. Well, who wouldn't be eager? Who wouldn't be eager for this singular, incomparable glory? It is always a probing diagnostic question for us to ask ourselves, what are we waiting for? People will tell you if you let them talk what they're waiting for. The picture here of the created order, Paul says, now in the original language, the picture is of creation like this, up on its tiptoes straining and peering and longing for the glory, which is here called the revealing of the sons of God. Right? The sons of God are revealed in glory when the Son of God is revealed in glory at the end of the age. An important text in this connection is also in 1 John 3, 2, where he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, right? If children, then heirs. We are God's children now. That's the glory begun in you, the glory already underway. We are God's children now. But then John says this, what we will be has not yet appeared. That's amazing. You're a child of God now, but what you will be is not, has not made its appearance. He says, but we know this much, John says, that when he appears, he's playing on the word appearance, we shall be like him. We shall be like the transfigured, resurrected, exalted Christ because we will see him even as he is. So the revealing of the sons of God means the disclosure to the world, the open public disclosure of the glory of the people of God. This is what the creation is waiting for. And it happens at the end. Millions, right? Hundreds of millions of the sons of God have died. When will they be revealed in glory? When will Neil Fick be revealed in glory? When you will be revealed in glory. 
when the Son of God appears in glory. For this, Paul says, the creation is in a state of expectation. Because it was, he says this in verse 20, it was subjected to futility. It was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but because of God who subjected it to futility. So this is a reference here to the curse, to Genesis 3. The curse which Jesus bore judicially for his elect. But the curse which even after the resurrection of Jesus remains with its effects on our bodies. And on the ground. The curse is not removed from the created order. You can look this up. Revelation 21.4, Revelation 22.3. At that point, after the appearance of Jesus... After the final judgment, the curse is removed from the ground. It's removed from your body. Every funeral, every hospital, every cemetery should remind you, it's not yet removed from my outer man. And the word, so the creation is subject to futility. And the word for futility is the same word used in the book of Ecclesiastes for vanity. Right? It refers to our ongoing, vaporous existence as creatures in this fallen order. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. All of life is a puff of smoke, a vapor, and this remains true in the New Testament. The creation is waiting for something, eagerly. And it's doing it while it is subject to a kind of futility. But notice Paul says it's subject to futility in hope. In hope. What hope? What hope? Paul tells us that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. We're not talking about moral corruption here. We're talking about natural corruption, the nature of things, the cycle of death and decomposition and decline. Creation is longing for death to be destroyed. So that it might obtain, Paul says, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Freedom from corruption, freedom from death itself. The freedom which you have a taste of even now by faith. And which you will have in your embodied fullness when glory is revealed. It's all a seamless web for Paul. So the creation is looking for man the head and priest of creation, the leader of creation, to be raised in glory, to be liberated from death and corruption so that the creation itself will be liberated from death and decay and decomposition. That is creation's hope. It's the same as our hope, or at least it should be the same as our hope. It is what Paul calls the, notice the article, the blessed hope of the church, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Calvin, in his characteristically clear way, summarizes this very verse. Here's what he says on this verse. This is really quite provocative. But it's a good summary of what I've been trying to get across. He says this, there is no element, no part of the world. So, like no subatomic particles, even though Calvin didn't know what those were. There's no element, there is no part of the world, he says, which 
touched with the knowledge of its present misery, there's this age, is not intent on the hope of the resurrection. There's not a single blade of grass that is not doing two things. It senses its current futility and misery, and it longs for the bodily resurrection, Calvin says. That's astonishing. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. So what does this look like? Or better, maybe better. What does this eager longing, waiting in futility and hope, what does it sound like? Well, some of you know what I'm going to say next. (laughs) It sounds like groaning. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning. Together, in the pains of childbirth until now. Do we know that? Paul thinks we know that. So this is the bottom line. This creation, destined for full liberation from death and decay and corruption, is currently groaning because of a certain futility that still lies on the ground. Creation groans then, all of it, Let's be clear, all of it, beautiful sunsets, every element, Calvin says, right? Lovely vistas, breathtaking views, animal violence, tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, fresh snowfalls, all of it. It's all groaning because it's still marked by death. It's still marked by bondage to corruption. It's still marked by meaningless repetition. And it has not yet realized its hope, which is its freedom and the full and future glory of which the sons of God will partake. And the groaning of the created order is acute. It's not like it's like mumbling under its breath. Paul says it's loud and it's incessant for those who have ears to hear, for it's groaning like the pains of a woman in childbirth. Did you hear any of it on the drive over this morning? Probably not, right? Because we're not tuned into this. Did you hear it? The whole creation is groaning in labor, groaning to give birth to a new world for the emergence of a new order. The creation groans, but it's not alone. Christians groan, which is our second point. So this is the second point. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, Paul says. That's his words, right? Not only the creation, but we ourselves. Here's Calvin again on this. The excellence of our future glory is of such importance, even to the very elements, which are devoid of sense and reason, that they burn with a desire for it. Rocks, dirt, burns with a desire for the coming glory. How much more, Calvin says, Should we, who have been illumined by the Spirit, aspire and strive for the attainment of so great a good? Do you see how far apart from Paul we are? Whatever we're doing, it isn't this. Let me just recap the Calvin quote. The dead innate 
lifeless stuff in the cosmos is burning for Jesus to appear. How much more should you, who have the Spirit, who is the gift of the future, the gift of God, how much more should you long to see him, whom we allegedly love? The mute, sub-rational creation groans, we should even more so. And what causes us to groan, Paul says? Well, unlike, unlike the rocks and the trees, we have the gift of the Spirit. We have the pledge, the first fruits of our inheritance. And thus Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait. I'll just pause. You may not think you're groaning, but you are. I'll, I'll touch on this in a minute. But Paul does not say, look, you should conjure up some groaning. He says, everyone is groaning. Right? He, he, doesn't think, he doesn't think you have to like manufacture, look at the creation and say, I wonder if I can spot any groaning out there. He says, no, groaning is the fundamental state of affairs. Just open your eyes. You're groaning. The creation waits eagerly, Paul says, and now we eagerly wait. He says, for the redemption of our bodies. Again, our inner man is being renewed. Our outer man decays. Right? I had the privilege of being in a hospital multiple times this week. So maybe I get to see this more than others. But I can tell you, tell you every single last person's outer man is decaying. Right? I often think I could just sit in the hospital and wait there. I'd eventually see every one of you. You're all going to show up. Our outer man decays. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So Paul, notice the terms Paul piles up here. Our inheritance, the glory to be revealed, the revealing of the sons of God, the hope of the feudal creation. All of these are synonyms for the resurrection of the dead, the time when your body, which now, as we heard in the catechism, is in the dust, still united to Christ, will be liberated from death and decay. In this tent, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5. Right? Because this, this is not in one place in Paul. This is shot. In this tent, this body, we groan, he says. Why are we, what are we groaning for? Again, he says, we're longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, our resurrection body. Why? So that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Of that, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. This is the destiny of your body. Paul speaks of it in Philippians 3. Listen to this text. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Who will listen? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That is what we're groaning for. This is what having the first fruits of the Spirit causes. Because why? The Spirit unites us to the glorified and risen Jesus. Right? This is the logic, the inevitable logic, the inevitable orientation of supernatural, spirit-wrought union with the glorified one. This is not some sort of weird fringe aspect of Christianity. The text says... This is the hope in which we've been saved. 
Which, of course, does not mean we don't have many earthly aspirations and desires. But the, again, the article for Paul, the Christian hope is the consummation. It's the redemption of our bodies. And he makes it clear that this hope is wholly, completely future. Because he says what is seen is not hope. We don't see this. It's not something we can see now. Who hopes, Paul says, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait. And we wait with patience, he says. Right? This does not produce crazed, apocalyptic lunatics. It produces patient, eager waiting. So the creation groans, we groan, and then stunningly, my third point here is the spirit groans. This is quite a remarkable feature, right? The Holy Spirit, the text says, helps us in our weakness. Actually, it says weakness is, plural. What weakness are we speaking about here? Well, it's the weakness of being in a state of waiting and groaning, of suffering and frailty and ambiguity and hope, of decay and death. It's the weakness of having the commencement, but not the consummation. The down payment, but not the inheritance. Of having the light of the gospel and still seeing through a glass darkly. It's this state of blessedness and weakness. In this state, we often have no idea what to pray for. It's remarkable that Paul could unpack such a stunningly exquisite, rich theology and then say, and by the way, I'm not even sure what to pray for. Like, we don't know what to pray for. But he says, God overcomes this. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. Plural, notice that. Groanings, too deep for words. Those inarticulate sighs of the heart. That's the Holy Spirit groaning within you. This is God. In the groanings of the world, groaning underneath the groaning of the creation's pain, groaning in and through its inarticulate sighs and moans. And this means that prayer in this age is groaning. Right? Prayer is itself a form of suffering. It's a way of entering into the world's birth pangs. It's marked by longing. That's why we pray, because we are not yet face-to-face with the one to whom we make our petitions. The Spirit... Paul says, intercedes for the saints according to the mind and the will of God. There's a great Scottish New Testament scholar in the middle of the 20th century named John Murray. He said, we have two intercessors. This should be of great comfort to you. We have two intercessors. We have Christ interceding for us in heaven, and we have the Spirit interceding in the theater of our hearts. What a beautiful thing that is. In the midst of the groaning, in the midst of the futility and the perplexity of the age, we have two intercessors. Christ in heaven, the spirit in the theater of our hearts. So this is a comprehensive text. It makes sweeping cosmic claims about all of reality. But this text is what authentic, spirit-filled Christianity sounds like. It sounds like groaning. This is Pentecostal Christianity. Don't settle for some substitute. Let me close. I'll make two points in closing briefly. I'm going to call them with and without. 
So with. With groaning is what I mean. Groaning is not a distinct fruit of the Spirit. That's not how Paul views it. It's more basic. It's with everything. It's more like, the the only analogy I've ever used here is it's like the fruit basket. It's the space in which the fruits operate. It's what happens when you have the Spirit at all, Paul thinks. That's his logic. Having the Spirit, we groan. So patience, for example. Paul says we wait eagerly with patience. Patience is produced by groaning. It doesn't compete with it. And groaning, as we've just seen, produces prayer. Prayer oriented toward the end. Prayer which enters into the sighing and the inarticulate longings of the creation. What does this look like? It looks like the Apostle Paul, that's what I would say. Have you seen Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3? Go read those prayers. You'll see how someone who has this ethos prays that way. So this drives, it shapes, it infuses, it animates everything that the apostle does. This is the apostolic life. This is life with groaning. So without it, what is life without groaning? And here, this is the elephant in the room. Is there, in fact, anything like this in our Christian experience and existence? Well, in one sense, there must be. Paul says, whoever whoever is a Christian groans. But we often don't hear anything. But it's there, I suspect. It's just under the surface. If groaning is produced by the Spirit, let me put it this way, and it's absent, then we have good reason to ask if we're Christians. For Paul, there are Zero, precisely zero, non-groaning for glory Christians. There are not two classes of Christians here, those who yearn for glory and those who are happy to have it endlessly deferred. There's one class of Christians, and they yearn for glory. So again, Paul says, you don't have to conjure this. You don't have to conjure it. You just have to have the Holy Spirit. Now, we should not confuse this with groaning in general, like complaining. We have a lot of that kind of groaning, right? There's groaning like that. We should also not confuse this with wanting to go to heaven. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is not even believing in the second coming. That's not even what he's talking about. Like like you're checking a box. This is deep internal yearning for the coming new creation, right? For the redemption of your body. One last time, Calvin. Calvin says this, If groaning is a burden to any, they are necessarily overthrowing the order which has been laid down by God. Well, if you're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to go around groaning. I don't go around groaning. Well, that's fine. You're just overturning the order laid down by God. There should be nothing burdensome about this. You're groaning for the beloved. So what's the remedy? The remedy is to go to the very source of the groaning, the divine groaner himself, namely the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says, right? Open yourself up to, invite the Spirit, drink from the Pentecostal Spirit, pray in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. For the Spirit is God and He comes forth from God and He leads you to communion with God. 
Right? He's not like an accoutrement, like a condiment to spice up the Christian life. He's God who comes from God and leads you back to God. He shows you the face of the risen and the glorious and the embodied Christ. And that, if it's real, must produce yearning for us. Who does not yearn for their beloved? And that yearning for us means we must be yearning for the consummation of all things, for the fullness of our inheritance, for the glory to be revealed, for the redemption and the resurrection of our bodies. Blessed are those who groan in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen.